This episode is brought to you by Philly Gemstones. Well, the thing about Lady Gaga's concept of the crystal-lined hallway, hallway of her house... Allegedly. Well, exactly, <laughs> um, is that um, she may or may not be alluding to something that was hugely popular in the 18th century in uh, formal gardens of the great houses. And so you would see the lakes and the capability browns and the planting of the trees. And then you would go into the grotto, um, which would be lined with clusters of rock crystal that would return the light. And, um, and so she's really... Um, you know, following an, an established pattern there, or whether she knows she's following it is quite a quite a difficult one to answer, and we'll probably never know. But it's not um, there's nothing new under the sun, but that is definitely not new. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. Today we're talking about the breath of the white dragon. Every civilization extending back to the earliest humans have been drawn to rock crystal for its beauty and vitality. From the beginning, it was thought to possess magical qualities, and its glassy structure and curative capacity remains undimmed. And we're going to talk about this mysterious and celestial values today with Geoffrey Munn. Jeffrey is an author, social historian, jewellery expert. If I want anybody's opinion on a jewel, it's Jeffrey's. You know him best through his work on the Antiques Roadshow. Jeffrey, thank you so much for coming to join me today. Well, it's an absolute pleasure and honour. Thank you very much. And I'm very excited that we could actually meet up and do it live because I know you've bought some things that we're actually going to talk about. Yes. And things that we can hold, look at, feel the energy, maybe. Yes. And we will put images of all of this up on the Instagram so everyone can see it as well. But first of all, I thought we've got to clarify, haven't we, what we're actually talking about. Because when you talk about crystal, a lot of people think Baccarat. Yes. And we're not talking about that. No, we're not. No, there's a huge gulf of interest between rock crystal, quartz and and glass. And so what is often described as, as crystal is nothing more than glass. And the hardness is different, the refractive index is different, all the scientific things different. And um, so it's a complete misnomer. So we're going to concentrate on um, quartz, white, pure, ice-white quartz formed at the beginning of the world, really. Two billion years ago, these crystals were made and, and they fascinated um, mankind ever since. Well, not ever since, because mankind didn't exist when these things were, were, were formed in the earth. So it's very, very exciting stuff. And even the pieces that people find now were formed two billion years ago. Yes, I mean, loosely they are. Yeah, and, and, uh, and because it's um, igneous rock, it comes from volcanic activity. And I suppose it would, the, there is a chance that it's being formed today, but I haven't heard 
much about it. And it's associated with, with the, you know, stones like granite and very hard materials of volcanic origin, which, of course, the diamond is as well. Um, the diamond is formed from intense heat and pressure. But that's another road to go down because we've got something that's white and beautiful. I see white, but not a diamond. No, no, no. <laughs> and not quite as hard. It's like seven on the hardness scale. Yes, it is, it? which is very, very hard indeed. Mm. And that makes it challenging to work and to carve. And that's been one of the reasons why it's um, more more uh, enigmatic than, than glass. But we're trying to ditch glass. We don't want to talk about it. No, we're no, not going that's to. it. We want to talk about the first humans who basically came across rock crystal. That was the ancient Greeks, was it? Or yes. the Egyptians? Well, Did I mean, Egypt- I suppose that's going to be quite hard mm. to map. But I think the very key to it was whether they could work it or not. And it's one thing finding it, um, mm. but whether you could bring it into the world of jewellery, which is after all what we're talking about, is entirely another thing because it is so very hard. And if you want to wear it, you have to drill it or you have to mount it. And, and sometimes you need to polish it into the shapes you want. So that's enormously challenging. And, and I'm not to do all things. I don't really know the first worked ones, but, but we get to see it in the 8th and 9th century, don't we? Very much so. And Tutankhamun's tomb has rock crystal. Yes, indeed. In, was it a sword or a dagger? I think it was the hilt of a dagger. Uh-huh. Well, there's a lot of lapidary work there anyway, but most of the stones in that burial are softer. Lapis lazuli are very prominent there, mm-hmm. and um, I think some coral. But but no, this is this is really very, very hard material, and it's part of its deep fascination, I think. Part of the fascination of precious stones is that they're, to a degree, they're a memento mori. We know subliminally, without even thinking about it, that these things were there much before mankind, and they will be there much after mankind, and certainly this kind, um, us. And so so it's one of the, the magical properties of it. It's um, Perhaps it's related to the world of flowers, but these are... Precious stones are very vivid colours. They are. They have a, the same resonance as flowers, but they last forever. And then in, uh, in the back of our minds, we know we don't, which is a bit sad, but there we are. So maybe we think about the ancient Greeks of having discovered it because mm-hmm. they named it, didn't they? Yes. And what did they name it, Carol? Crystallis. Crystallis. Like frozen water. Uh, frozen water. <laughs> well, that's the key, certainly. I think that um, Pliny, I think had, the Roman natural historian, had um, in his mind that this was perpetually frozen water. And actually, we can see it. I mean, we've got crystals in front of us now. that we, They do look like frost flowers. And... Um, and so it's a very easy mistake to make. But there is a link with um, high altitudes and with extremely cold weather, of course. And in German, it is Bergkristall. It's the crystal of the mountains because it's found there high up amongst the snow and the frost. And so you can entirely understand why Pliny the Roman thought that it was a perpetually frozen water. And I think they thought that the gods would never allow it to become unfrozen. Yes. So... Do you think that its perfect geometrical symmetry added to their Mm. idea that it had some magical power? Yes, I think so. And and, um, when we meant just within the diamond, because the diamond is so incomprehensibly hard, it's the hardest material known to man, and there's no language to discuss its hardness, and it crystallises in the cubic form, and so nothing could come near it for hundreds of years for cutting, and so more often than not it was set in in a rhomboid way, um, in, in a gold setting, and there was a fascination with that, it was sort of nature had 
cut the diamond, if you like. But certainly nature has cut these rock crystals that I'm seeing before me now, and, and, um, and, and they're natural facets. And as I'm moving them, they're reflecting and refracting the light. And, um, and I think we're both hypnotised, aren't we? We're hypnotised. And we're talking about clear crystal, as we've said. But the fact is, although crystal clear has become the modern go-to description of something yes. transparent, yes. it's not transparent, is it? No. And that's the that's the, the mesmerising part of it. I think so. And it does help you identify it and keeps it a long way away from glass um, because you can see what are called feathers and inclusions coming through it. And, and sometimes, I think very rarely, there are sort of bubbles within filled with some kind of liquid, but that would need a microscopic identification but there's um, other minerals uh, invade it rutile does and it's very beautiful to see these stripy lines coming through um, and and, and um, yeah so it, it is um, it's it is beauty out of chaos I always say this that these these precious stones come from the origin of the world almost from the black hole and and somewhere along the line mankind finds them not only beautiful but magical and um, and I think it's it's that that separates us from the beasts. I read somewhere that the Japanese, the ancient Japanese, thought crystal, rock crystal, was the perfect jewel, and they called those wisps and clouds and mm -hmm. um, internal inclusions that we were just talking about the breath of the white dragon. Ooh, I like that. Which very is much. so romantic, isn't it? Yes, it's... it is. <laughs> and they're very. I'm, I'm, I think uh, particularly the Chinese are very fascinated by polishing rock crystal into spheres and balls, and those are more often than not have inclusions in them, which is the right word, but it is part of the fascination, the clouds and the breath and all the rest of it. But having said that, the purest rock crystal, those that are apparently un without flaws, are very much sought after. And then we can come whistling straight up to the 20th century with Fabergé, who in the tradition of the Renaissance goldsmiths was mounting hard stones, rock crystals, um, lapis lazuli, um, agates and things uh, in gold and um, with exact, exactly the same evocation of status that these were very valuable objects to furnish a court. And But um, the distinction with, with Fabergé is that he more often not used rock crystal that's apparently flawless. So so you look at it and you might go down the glass route for a second until you pick it up and then you know instinctively that this is a stone and so it's very exciting. I think he went down the frozen water route. Yes, he because did. Because he carved this to make it look as if his flower studies were in a glass of water. Oh, so yeah. it sort of links it to that, the, the, what Pliny and the ancient Greeks uh, thought. Very much so. And that's a very, very cunning thing that he did because um, it's really a block of rock crystal. And then it's carved down, if you, if you like, to the level of the liquid to suggest the liquid and then drilled. So the stalk goes deep into the apparently water white specimen vase and it's an illusion there's refraction of the stem and and for to all intents and purposes you have a real flower but mysteriously you have a everlasting flower now when you walked in this morning and you picked up i have a david webb ring yes. here in rock crystal with some diamonds mm. on to the top and you immediately felt and said it's cold yes and of course that's what Pliny used to talk about, wasn't mm. it? He, he tried to put it in the sun's rays to get something hot coming from an object that yes. was naturally cold. Mm. And do you think mm. that's, again, one of the things that they felt there was some sort of magic 
trick going on. A sort of contradiction. I've read also that they did use it as a sort of lens to 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 focus the rays of the sun to make fire. So that's as one does with a magnifying glass when one's a kid to sort of burn holes in books and other joyous things. They, 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 um, they, it, it is possible to do that with a rock crystal lens. I'm never completely convinced by all of that, but it is... It is mysteriously cold, and there's something about it that's indefinable, and I nobody's come near to explaining what it is, that if you take a piece of rock crystal and put it to your face and leave it there for a while and take it away, it is, will be cold. But then about 30 seconds later, there's a burn, a very distinct feeling of, of a burn. It, it doesn't hurt you in any way, but I'm wondering if it isn't some electromagnetism going on there that's drawing something out of you. And, um, and it, it, I think that's been a fascination for an awfully long time and why these crystal balls are very fascinating. I've got one here, which is um, a 17th century one. In, in, a, in a silver sling and um, immediately I pick it up and I, I can feel it's cold. And, um, and, it's like and an some, ice cube. Yeah. A round ice cube. Yeah. Very but decoratively it, displayed. Yes, but also um, it's a magical jewel and, and um, there's a great tradition for bringing these many miles to the sick. And that wasn't um, only um, human beings, but also livestock were were thought to be cured by these. And it was they were often dropped into water so that they imbued the water with this talismanic magic significance. This object is totally haunted. I'm very pleased with it. It's one of my prized possessions. Well, does it haunt your house? Do you it does. No, no, it doesn't <laughs> quite do that. But I mean, it's supposed to be good for me and for everybody else. And one can only guess at its history. But of course, where the last flashbulb of activity surrounding this because it was made two billion years ago in the ground in the in the earth in the ignis fire of the earth and it lay there in some form or another until about four or five hundred years um, ago when it was polished into this ball and then made into a sort of silver sling which keeps it complete um you can't it's not drilled but it is um a deeply fascinating object because it has an unspoken history which is very moving to me that's interesting it's not drilled as well mm. because i have a ring here yeah which um is by someone called barbara harris who mm. who does what she calls water jewels and i wrote about her in my book the new mm. stone age and what she does is she believes that if you actually drill the rock crystal with a hot solder or mm. metal tool, tooling it, you're going to bruise the rock crystal. So she does it with water jets. She Gosh. shapes it with water jets. And it's a sort of, mm. it's almost like um, a wrapped rock crystal ring, two yes. pieces wrapping mm. each other. But Very that's good. interesting that there was that Elizabethan moment when they didn't want to drill. And she carries that idea mm. forward. And it would have been hard to drill it straight the way through because it's not a small thing. It's about the size of a tangerine mm. and that would have been demanding. But it would also break the spell because you'd see the drill hole. As you see in my David Webbering, yeah. yes. which is, um, you can see the drill holes to get the, the diamonds on yeah. the top. Yeah, but that's um, uh, an honest, you know, ad adaptation. But, but I want to talk about it really as um, going back to the objects of high esteem. Mm. And that I think at Roman tables, crystal goblets and vessels, mm. they were a real um, status symbol, weren't they? Completely. To have a colourless pitcher to serve wine. Or... Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and also it was a very costly material and the lapidary work would have been costly and then almost certainly would be mounted in precious metal. So we see that in, um, in, in the ancient world, but we see it absolutely full on in the Renaissance courts of the Sforza and the Medici. And, and the message was that I live in a palace 
You can walk along the corridor. You will see my lapidary work, my rock crystals, my lapis lazulis, and my agates mounted in gold by Benvenuto Cellini. And then when you walk far enough um, to the doge's inner sanctum, you will have passed by his pictures and his ceramics and his silks. And the message was, you know, I'm not only rich, and powerful, but I can remain so. And that's a very interesting subliminal message that is actually um, adhered to by a monarchy today. We don't want to see our, you know, our kings and queens in gabardine max. We want them in silks and and um, and we want emblems of, of rank. And so rock crystal was exactly that. And in the Scottish crown jewels, the scepter is um, uh, uh, incorporates a, a rock crystal globe, not much bigger than this one, um, uh, in, into it, which is a very mysterious object. Some, in the honours, it's called yes, the honours, isn't it? the honours, yes, absolutely. Because we talked about this yeah. on If Jewels Could Talk a few yes. episodes ago, Mary Queen of Scots. Yes. And um, how she was crowned using the honours. Yes, goodness. Well, they are, they, you know, in relative terms to the imperial state crown, they look rather modest, but this um, there's magic there because the, the anointing of the sovereign is a sacrament. I mean, it's a holy uh, moment. It's, it's the highest possible... Um, degree of sanctity and she would have held the mace with the rock crystal ball in the end of it. What the origin of that is is obscure because we know that these these rock crystal balls are found in um, Bronze Age burials. They're actually particularly associated with women and um, and and more often not there in a sling as this one is, sometimes in gold as one in the Metropolitan Museum. And obviously they're not very ergonomic. They clunk around all over the place, so their function is definitely magical. Now, was the one, the rock crystal ball in the scepter there, was that from an ancient grave and then had all the magic of that brought to the... And well, it certainly was. Didn't work for her, though, did it? No, no, no. She's one of my... I, I, I do love her. I think she's a very hypnotic creature. And, um, yeah. She so, needed more rock crystal. No, she definitely... That's where she went wrong, was not keeping it with her. Well, exactly. And actually, the night before she died, she wrote to the King of France, her brother-in-law, saying, um, would he pay her servants after her death? And then she said, I send you two talismans in the hope that they will bring you better luck than they have brought me... Oh. I know. So what were they? They could easily have been rock they crystals. They could have. Yeah, easily. We don't know. It's a heartbreaking mm. um, a bit of curiosity, mm. that. But it, So there we are. Do you think the Renaissance was the greatest period of crystal extravagance? Um, yes, I think that's a perfectly good um, observation. I mean, and, and then the neo-Renaissance, there was a, a huge interest in that in 19th century in France with Morel and other goldsmiths who were taking lapidary work and mounting it in gold. And then and then we have to mention Fabergé because he seems to be the most famous jeweller that ever lived. And um, I'm not sure. Anyway, and so um, um, and he, he uses it for cigarette cases, two, two panels of carved rock crystal and um, and then there's a paper knife given by the Tsarina to her nanny, Miss Jackson and um, it's like a sort of spatula but um, it's uh, absolutely pure, flawless rock crystal and, and it's bound with a little um, coloured gold bow and um, in the lid of the box in her own hand it says uh, for dear Miss Jackson with loving Christmas wishes from Alex and so these were um, things to give away with the royal touch because she was Empress of Russia and she had touched it and Miss Jackson who was very different rank entirely had something with the royal touch I think the royal touch is hugely important brings us a bit back to the regalia again 
Mm. Mm. But you can probably clear something up for me because I read that um, so. Nero, yes. talking about the, um, mm. the esteem and social status of mm. having these crystal objects, smashed his favourite crystal goblets Goodness. when he knew he was going to be killed. And that this was a sort of act of vengeance because you wouldn't want your precious objects to fall into someone's hand. But given their hardness, would that be possible? Oh, yes, very much so. And in fact, um, and it happened again um, with Lelia, Duchess of Westminster, um, who, who was married to the second Duke um, of Westminster, who wasn't treating her terribly well, and she was very unhappy. And she had um, a rock crystal clock by Cartier, a mystery clock, um, and there was a terrible scrap, and um, I'm not sure who threw it at whom, but it landed in the fireplace and was smashed to a thousand pieces because it's brittle, it's very hard, but it is brittle. And there's a distinction there, which isn't you know, very easy, but it is it is the truth. And then also, it, I've discovered in my cost um, in restoration that rock crystal doesn't like heat, which brings us back to the drilling. And, and um, on one occasion, there was a, a, a piece of rock crystal, happily not particular significance, with a gold mount, and they put the fire to it, and it exploded because it doesn't have any malleability, any ductile quality. It's absolutely what it is. And so if it heats and expands, then it, it, will, it will explode. So there we are, exploding rock crystals. Not a good moment, no. So he could have smashed it happily. None of these Russian um, objects of beauty were smashed and remain for all of us to yes. to see. I think some of them, sadly, were probably stripped of their mounts for when they became unfashionable. I think there was quite a lot of destruction with with post-revolutionary goldsmith's work, particularly the jewellery and the lapidary work. But the lower the intrinsic value, which actually, curious enough, is not enormous at all with rock crystal, an important point to make. It's not notionally very valuable, um, but it has this extraordinary power um, in our world to to uh, magical significance. But it isn't, you can buy a, uh, this, this group of rock crystals I've got here on the desk in front of me. I think I probably paid about £25 for it. So it's not intrinsically valuable. £25 when? Quite a oh. long time ago. Oh, well, you've been, you've been buying rock crystals. rock crystal now. Oh, has it gone mad? Uh, it's gone mad. Oh, good. Well, I obviously, <laughs> I haven't been keeping up with that. I mean, I obviously, well, there we are. I'm glad to hear it. But, um, but these other things that I brought um, are, are valuable because um, there's a tiny one here that's like a sugared almond. It's like a sort of... Um, well, it is that, a little egg, if you like, um, and, and it's bound in silver. And uh, mysteriously, I don't know how it's secured to it, because why it doesn't slide off, I don't know. It must be a ridge, but it says um, on it, balm and rest with two crosses, which I don't think necessarily religious ones, but it's the only talisman, the only amulet that I've ever found, and it happens to be in rock crystal, with a sort of caption. You know, it, 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 it's not that you know what its place is, it, it's telling you what its place is. And, um, and it was found in the ground, I think, not too long ago. And um, I was thrilled to get it. I don't necessarily believe in all Where did of it. you find it? Well, it was with an antique dealer, and he knows that I'm, I, you know, this, this obsession of mine with the magical jewels, which goes well beyond rock crystal, and um, offered it to me for sale, and I was delighted. And, and what the, age do you think it is? It's 17th century, for sure. We can tell that from the script, and it is silver. That's a very good point. You should say it's 17th century. 
And, and then we have to go into a world where there was no, and very apposite today, um, they had no idea what a virus was. They had no idea what a bacterium was. And that um, if you fell ill, even if it was from contagion, that this was a judgment on you and you had simply nothing to resort to at all except God and magic. And rock crystal, we can see it here, balm and rest um, is actually telling you the magical function of this jewel. And so lapidary work and magic and Christianity all, all ran absolutely concurrently. I mean, um, in Chaucer, you find uh, the wife of Bath is absolutely obsessed with uh, astrology, as she is uh, with Christianity. And they didn't conflict. So, mm -hmm. But it was a doubled up safety belt, you know, belt and braces against the plague and, and, and all manner of ills. So, so these, these things do have a power. And Queen Elizabeth I... Um, rock crystal was very prevalent during her reign, wasn't mm. it? Yes. Well, she is, um, you know, a great Renaissance prince in the wider sense of the word, and so she certainly would have had that. I'm, I'm, I'm just racking my brains to remember an example of that, but there's a most wonderful site that everybody can resort to, which is um, um, the New Year's gifts, New Year's Day gifts to Queen Elizabeth I have been recorded and transcribed online. My God, they're some marvellous things. She was given she was given a quince pie entirely covered with gold leaf. Mm -hmm. She was given two whippets, and then she was given a hat badge um, in the form of a dead tree with ruby sparks at its roots and mistletoe thereon. So yes, rock crystal would have been very much the thing for her, and she would have understood it precisely. And she had her astrologer, didn't she, John Dee? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And he, one of his crystal balls is in the British Museum? It is, and um, uh, her necromancer, I love that idea. Um, it's a great word, a sort of magician and astrologer. And the, 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 he had something very much closely related to um, rock crystal, but it's obsidian. And um, it's an Aztec mirror. How on earth he managed to get that at that time, I don't know. And so it's black. And then you use it as a scrying stone, which is to foretell the future. And he showed it to Queen Elizabeth I and they saw images therein. But scrying is the use of rock crystal spheres and balls to, to, to prophesy. And the word scrying means that. So looking into the crystal ball is a great cliche from Brighton Pier with somebody dressed up like a gypsy. Hers probably now, is simply glass. People who are listening in uh, yes. around the world might not know what Brighton Pier is. No. But it is somewhere on the south coast of England it's... where you go to fun fairs. Yes, you go And to... somebody would dress up as a gypsy and yes. have a crystal ball in front of them. They do, absolutely. Mm. And they cross their palm with silver. But they are scrying. It's a great word. And one can look it up. And it is... Um, but crystal is very, very much associated with that. But it's also associated with um, with Christianity in that in the Catholic world, uh, the Rerados and the altarpieces were gem set and, and again, inevitably with all kinds of coloured stones and cameos, but, um, but also um, sort of pellets of rock crystal. And here is one. And um, it's, how shall I describe that? It's, it's a, like a sort of... Um, it's like a pendant. It's like a sort of cabochon, a raised cabochon. Mm. piece of rock crystal set in silver. Yes. And now, actually you could wear it like it's been made yesterday. Yes. And it probably wasn't because my guess is that this, this stone is 9th century, some 8th or 9th 
century from Oriredos broken down in some turbulence in Middle Europe. And uh, But its magic was recognised and somebody's taken it and with that magic has turned it into a talisman by this very crude silver mount. And it's got his name on the back here, which I probably won't be able to read right now, but he's Jacob somebody or another. And it's it's Polish and um, and, and I think its origins are not only three billion years ago in the ground, but then in some mysterious altarpiece where where um, the mystery of transubstantiation was going on in front of the congregation. And then somehow or another, it was broken down, but the magic remains. It's, it's wonderful stuff. So sacred mm. spaces are not just in Christianity, but mm. in Islam as well. Yes, they are, mm. of course. Mm. Yeah, and decoration and um, is hugely important and... and um, and these these early um, sort of Ottoman rock crystals that we know about, yours and things, are, are breathtakingly beautiful. But they are honouring God rather than man, I think. And also, I guess, the crystal clear, transparent part meant you could have some relic or something that you would see very clearly but it would be protected absolutely until glass was invented well yes but i mean i think i think it was more honoring the contents because mm-hmm, you were using yes. something magical and costly and hard to make so we do see it often in reliquies and and that gives another sign of of high status but let's go back i want to know how crystals first got this reputation that you could look into the future mm. Well, I wish I knew the answer to that, because I'm not sure I do. But it's obviously a tradition, um, you know, highly established one. I mean, if Queen Elizabeth I is ready for that, I'm I'm guessing that it's got very, very early um, origins indeed, probably the classical world. But um, I'm afraid I can't quote you anything precisely there. Because you I think... call it the sphere of magical thinking, yes. don't you? Well, I do, yes. And I, I think it is, um, yeah, I mean, that's... Very compelling things that it would be wonderful to 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 pass this object to the people that are listening now, and I think they would get the magic. I think they would really understand it. It's it rock crystal. I think it's perfectly possible to own a small crystal of rock crystal at very small um, expense and feel the the coldness and um, the antiquity and the hardness of it very easily and it was hugely popular in in um in my youth that said it now um with, with, with the hippie cult um and um you, you know the sort of flower power crystal thing i think that's still maintained i'm not mm. sure i really believe it um what i believe in and what really fascinates me is the belief of others in it because that's all about relics really and we mentioned relics that uh, relics are usually preposterous fakes, usually, and um, but it doesn't matter. The Shroud of Turin was the most exciting one in my memory, and it's been totally debunked, but it doesn't matter at all because the history and the magic is imbued by the people that venerate these things, and they do venerate these, mm. these rock crystals, and that's enough for me. I found a quote by mm-hmm. um, a North African historian, Ibn yes. Khaldun, who wrote The Diviners, and he was talking about looking at rock crystal. The Diviners, whilst in this state, do not see what is really to be seen. It's another kind of perception which is born in them and which is realised not by the sight, but by the soul. Goodness, I love that one. I think that's quite accurate about why we believe. It's sort of, it becomes mesmerising. Yes. And then maybe you 
think and think differently. Yes, I think so. Well, they're they're sort of contemplation, aren't they, these objects? And they help you into another consciousness. The man that really dealt with that issue was Aldous Huxley in a book called The Doors of Perception. And he was um, experimenting with mescaline, um, a precursor to LSD. But it's the most fantastic read because he maintains that we have a separate consciousness and that we can't get to it um, except through um, the use of, in his case, mescaline and possibly LSD. But, but he said that certain objects and certain works of art are numinous, that they are vision-inducing and helpful to us. He mentions all precious stones and goldsmith's work right at the top. Mm-hmm. He said that every paradise in every religion is, is decorated with precious stones. And, and he's right. And, um, and if you want to take that reading a bit further, go to the book of Ezekiel. And where Ezekiel says, um, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. And then lists all our friends, the carnelians, the lapis lazuli, the crystals, um, um, the sapphire and the opal. It's wonderfully hypnotic, very hippie-ish, isn't it? We You're a little hippie at heart, aren't you, Jeffrey? Should we be smoking? <laughs> they don't know what we are doing. Not crystal, it's yeah. cheaper, uh, yeah, maybe, and safer. Probably healthier. Yeah. Anyway, so there we are. Look at that. We're but all old hippies at heart. Let's well, go well. and look at the, mm. this curative and healing aspect yes. of it. Where did that emanate from? Just because the ancients had to believe it had some power. They had to believe it had a power. Is yeah. that it? Well, I, I think that they would looking for permanence in an impermanent world because um, you were jolly lucky if you reached the age of 28, you know. The marriage vows were invented in the 8th century and they were jolly easy to keep because you were probably dead by 28. Um, so it wasn't a long run to be married and it wasn't a long run to be to live. And so, um, and you're going to die, almost certainly if you died at that age of disease and pestilence, which we know a little bit about today. And um, and we don't know where it comes from. So we must grapple and struggle and snatch at every opportunity to protect ourselves and, and from, from all these terrible things, and most particularly from, from um, infant mortality. So rock crystal is actually um, very much associated with the talismans that you see in paintings by um, uh, uh, Spanish masters with children with all kinds of talismans, pomanders, badgers, feet, corals, uh, and and rock crystal crosses. So they'd have the magic, but they'd also have Christ as well, um, because when they died, nobody knew why they died. So there we are, curative powers. They didn't, they had to just fight them off with this wonderful word, this apotropaic. It's a good word, apotropaic. It means anti-magic. It's to protect you um, from it. And Rockcrest was right up there um, in, in that group. So we should have been carried all through the last two years. We should have done. Well, some of us might have been. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I came on the underground with these and nothing happened. So <laughs> they obviously work. So, so Andy Warhol used to say yeah. that all sorts of things have gone wrong in his life and the crystals didn't work, but he had to believe in something. <laughs> so he'd keep with the crystals. Oh, well, I think that's the most wonderful thing to say, isn't it? But um, you said that the Elizabethans used to have rock crystal bowls, didn't they, as a panacea for these illnesses? Yeah, I think there's no, no, no doubt at all that if you drank from rock crystal that it would, you know, you garner some of this magic, this power, this this, this this curative power. And with this rock crystal ball that I brought today, it's the strongest association with water. So this one, you might be expected to 
put it into water and then perhaps sprinkle it with magical properties um, or drink it. So this one isn't quite a bowl, but all that magic would be if you were lucky enough to drink from a rock crystal bowl. You would expect some magical apotropaic return. Everybody be scrabbling to look up a potrapeg. Hope so. Great work. So I guess the documenting of all these properties, the recorded, the folklore, the legend, the myth passed down has led us to another what I think is a, is a new crystal age because people are believing it with as much passion, I think, as probably the Elizabethans now. Yes, yes. Well, it's a very cynical world and um, and, and we know a lot about creation and we know a lot about humanity but the the great you know burden of humanity is is this business of trying to ponder what on earth we're doing here and what's it all about and the only way to come close to that perhaps is through all religions all major religions but but also through magic and, and why not it's um it's the same faith which is important and that's the very word, isn't it? Because with, if, without faith, it's 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 tough. It's tougher without faith. I'm always sort of slightly envious of people who have very strong religious faith because they've got the answer, whether or not I believe they've got the answer. But but I think it's a stronger place. And so if if you don't find it in the major religions, you may find it in in in, in the old magic of these these um, apotropaic jewels. I think. Uh, you know, I talk in my book about um, young people really, uh, really holding on to these gemstones as talismans. And I guess when you think of what we know about social media and that social media has become like their gatekeeper of truth, mm. Mm. how can that possibly be with fake news and the manipulation? Yeah. Oh. So actually, crystals are a much better thing for them to hold on to and believe in, really. Yes. Well, safe and traditional and fascinating. And decorative. And decorative and part of the creation even before mankind was was in the most primeval sort of evolutionary stage. Hardly a sort of slug climbing up the beach, these things were looking like that. Yeah. And then they've become very fashionable. The fashion world took them in. Victoria Beckham yeah. was giving them to her models before they'd go down the yes. catwalk. The designers at the row were giving them to journalists and clients as little keepsakes to keep them safe. So they've really been embraced, I think, mm -hmm. in fashion, um, collectors, the mantelpiece mineral thing coming back that people are displaying their minerals. Yes. Um, and in the art world, because they're being used as sort of natural pieces of of art. Yes. And people are putting them up or trying to hang them on walls, collecting great double terminated... Goodness. Spears of rock crystal. God, how marvellous. Well, no, I mean, they're just returning to an, an old theme. But, but um, Damien Hirst's diamond skull um, was an, a, a very fascinating uh, manifestation. But it, I'm sure that he would readily agree that he was um, inspired by the famous Aztec crystal skull in, in, in the British Museum, mm. um, which used to hypnotise me when I was 18 or 19. It used to be shown in Burlington Gardens, the Museum of Mankind. And um, that had, uh, in, in the cranium, there were sort of feathers of uh, inclusions and things which were like thought patterns. It's been slightly debunked now in that it's thought to be rather later than it was. But I don't care because, um, as I say, I was sort of almost venerating this extraordinary vision. And I think Damien Hirst certainly um, would have been aware of 
it, no, how could he have failed, but he made it into something even more um, permanent and even more terrifyingly hard, and, 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 uh, which was diamonds. And of course the diamonds and all these stones, as long as you don't smash them up, um, they will, they will, when the black hole comes, they will be the same. Yes. We won't. Somebody else will find them in another... In another, yes. Well, I think black hole's a bit of a scary prospect. I'm not sure we're going to find terribly much at all. But anyway, we'll work on that. Um, and, you know, Los Angeles have gone crazy. Lady mm. Gaga apparently is having a sort of crystal dome built into her hallway. Goodness. She's been very um, inspired by a Serbian performance artist called Marina Abramovic. Do you mm. know her work, Jeffrey? I don't, I'm afraid, no. Well, she about. explores the influence of mm. crystals and stones on the mind and body, sort mm. of pursuing what the rational brain can't explain. Mm. So she creates sculptural chairs grounded in rock crystal boots. Or has a chair with a rock crystal where your head rests. Goodness. Exploring the effect on mind and yes. body. And I think it's sort of almost sort of going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, because she's thinking about how something so hard, you know, the transformation of liquid mm. coming into something solid through the action of time. Yes. Well, the thing about Lady Gaga's concept of the uh, crystal lined um, hallway. hallway of her house. Allegedly. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, and... Um, so the crystal-lined hallway um, is that um, she may or may not be alluding to something that was hugely popular in the 18th century in uh, formal gardens of the great houses. And so you would see the lakes and the capability browns and the planting of the trees. And then you would go into the grotto, um, which would be lined with clusters of rock crystal that would return the light. And, um, and so she's really, um, you know, following an, an established pattern there. Or whether she knows she's following it is quite a, a, quite a difficult one to answer. And we'll probably never know, but it's not, um, there's nothing new under the sun, but that is definitely not new. And, um, and you can see it there. So every mineral, every gemstone um, has a, a, a predictable crystal structure. So when this stone was molten in, in the fire of the creation, it cools down, but it obeys specific rules. So, you know, the, the, they, they have a cubic structure or a not a cubic structure, rhomboid one. And, um, and it's quite inexplicable why molten um, materials like that should arrange themselves. But that is the great mystery of creation, which I think we are talking about. I mean, it's making me sound, you know, um, ridiculously fey and sort of, I mean, as I say, I'm not convinced um, by the magic of it, but what I am convinced of and define deeply fascinating is that all my predecessors were, and that's the power of relics and the power of jewellery and the power of precious stones. Do you think every jeweller eventually discovers rock crystal? I think every jeweller worth his salt ought to have discovered it for <laughs> absolutely immediately. And he probably does. I mean, that would be driven by demand, you see, because the jeweller is, um, you know, there to, to do his trade. And, um, and, and, and as, as long as the, the collectors and the buyers um, want it, then they will supply it. But it's very adventurous from time to time. I mean, it's, um, and you see it, I think it's some of its most attractive and, and poetic in the Art Deco period. Um, there were brooches and sometimes very heavy bangles 
mounted in platinum and set with diamonds. And the diamonds not only draws the eye into the rock crystal, but it shows um, everybody that this is a, a, a precious um, material, not intrinsically valuable, but has huge um, peripheral value to it. And it can magnify the stones underneath, can't it? Yes, it can. And it can be made into lenses. So we're, we're back with um, uh, Pliny with sort of, you know, using it to focus the rays of the sun on to, to make fire. So you, you take something cold and bring, bring, bring fire from it. It's hugely contradictory. And I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about how people worked it and how it was engraved and carved Mm. and I mean how much we can deduce about life at the time through perfect carved scenes on rock crystal. Well I think we can deduce it and actually that was one of the things that debunked the marvellously famous rock crystal skull in the British Museum because they discovered that it had been the lapidary work had been achieved with a, a spinning wheel of some sort or another rather than other techniques but, um, so it would have been abrasive powders, would yeah. it? To, to... Mm. And then one's got to consider that the abrasive powder's got to be harder than the rock crystal. And the first candidate for that, although uh, thinking about it right now, I'm not sure how available it would have been, but the sapphire um, would, would do the job pretty neatly, um, you know, because the sapphire is the second hardest material known to man. But in order to polish anything, you have to have something of comparable hardness. Maybe that's the thing or something harder than the, the material. So, so the diamond, of course, can only be cut and polished by the diamond dust. Um, uh, and that's always puzzled me, actually. But anyway, it's the truth. And, um, and then most other precious stones can be cut uh, and drilled with diamonds. And it's extraordinary how these complex scenes mm. were, were carved onto mm. these tiny stones. Yes. And, and they have a, a sort of um, autograph uh, quality, the early ones, because they, they're, not, they're not too perfect. So you really feel the hand of the artist and the endeavour to carry on polishing um, in the way that they evidently did. Um, so I'm looking at those Fatimid ewers and basins and things with marvellous leopards and characters on them. But somebody has sat down for hours on end abrading those out. And their work is absolutely the same to us as it was to them, because the other quality of, of, of rock crystal and many gemstones and some precious metals is that they're completely incorruptible. I mean, they, they don't oxidise, they don't suffer from, from damp or... No, they're completely in, uh, incorruptible. Nothing can touch them. They're um, exactly the same um, at the beginning of time as the end of time and so that's rather marvellous. Is there one in your in your research um, that you've noticed that has really told a tale, a, a, a rock crystal scene that you've actually can see how uh, somebody lived at the time that really told a story? Well I would return to those Fatimid ones, they sort of, they, they, they're the ones to to look for and and there's a marvellous publication, a recent one here, um, which we have on the desk in front of us and I think we should mention it's called Seeking Transparency, Rock Crystals Across the Medieval Mediterranean and, um, and I urge anybody with even a passing interest in this subject to go and get this book because it's superbly illustrated but um, there's magic not only in the materials but in the text as well. And what you're saying to me, compounded by that book, is that nothing erases the romance and lore of rock crystal. 
No, or indeed the law of the lapidary, which widens it right out to all these marvellous materials that we, we know about. And, um, and the interpretation of them, I mean, we're focusing on rock crystal because of what it's all about, but equally, almost every precious stone has a very particular talismanic function. And it's easy to interpret them once you get the knack, but they're paralleled in the world of flowers, which we alluded to earlier. So the ruby is the rose, and both of them are sacred to Venus. And the turquoise is the forget-me-not, and the forget-me-not in the language of flowers is for true love. And so there's messages coming out of these jewels. Now, do we know all of this anymore in the 21st century in this buzzy-wuzzy world we live in? No, is the answer, but we know it subliminally, somehow or another, deep in our hearts, this message is still there. The message is also there because if the material is synthetic, the magic is simply not there. So you can buy a synthetic emerald for an absolute fraction of what it would cost to buy the same emerald, uh, a natural one. And so what's the difference? They're both emeralds. One's made by man, one's made by God. We only want the God-made ones and we'll pay a lot for it. So it's not something that comes close to rock crystal, but it does explain the magic of it. Thank you, Geoffrey. That's so poetically put. Thank you very much. And thank you for sharing your knowledge and passion about the magic and mystery of rock crystal. Thank you very much. You'll never be bored. Um, People who are interested in jewellery, you'll never be bored. And so it's a wonderful thing and and, um, an honour to have some contribution to it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwalton.com slash podcasts. And if you liked it, please share it any way you can. Please subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts, where we would love a rating and a comment. Please join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget when I'll be talking to the actress and model, Brooke Shields. We'll be talking about a collection of Edwardian and Art Deco jewels, her love of stars and planets, and a new collection she's created with the Beverly Hills-based jeweler Robert Prokop of Exceptional Jewels. So we'll be talking about all kinds of things. Please join me then. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. <laughs>